This is a test. For the next 60 seconds, this station will conduct a test of the emergency broadcast system. This is only a test. The following program is intended for mature audiences. Oh, you can't be serious, man. You cannot be serious! That ball was on the line! Chalk flew up! Welcome to This Week in Tennis. Welcome to This Week in Tennis. That was Kansas. Let's play the game tonight on the March the 4th, 2013 edition of This Week in Tennis. My name is Phil Nasons and I am the host of this weekly radio program dedicated to the sport of tennis. From the teenies to the top pros in the world, we cover it all. We cover issues that no one seems to want to touch. 
and we're not afraid to say whatever we need to say when we need to say it. Unlike a lot of radio programs, we're an original. We don't copy anyone else's stuff. We don't follow anybody. We just bring you the very best that we can bring each and every week. And today we've got a very good show planned for you. We're going to talk about homosexuality in tennis. Jason Collins, the NBA journeyman who came out of the closet, so to speak, this past week. Well, a lot of people are starting to ask, what's up with the world of sports or what's up with homosexuality in tennis? And we're going to attempt to answer that question. We've also had so many questions about how does one become a professional tennis photographer on the tour? And we're joined, obviously, by one tonight who... (laughs) Is my normal co-host. I haven't had a chance to work with in a while, and we'll get into that in a minute. And then we're going to talk about doping. Uh, Dr. Fuentes is a very well-known um, doc, sports doctor. He's been suspended in Spain for four years from practicing medicine for allegedly doling out performance-enhancing drugs. And we're going to talk about that and what impact that will have on the tennis world, if any. And tonight, joining me to talk about all these things is professional photographer Craig Doyle from CraigDoylePhotography.com. Dude, welcome back to the show, man. You've been missed. How are you? Uh, Firstly, I'd like to thank you for uh, inviting me back. It's been a while, Um, but I'm good. I'm really good. Very busy, but uh, it's great to be able to take a time out and come back and join you uh, to do the show again. Well, I appreciate you taking the time at 12.44 a.m. <laughs> it's 2.44 a.m. for me. <laughs> so I'm happy to have you here. It's not about not wanting you here. My schedule's been heinous, as you know. We normally do this show during the daytime, during our daytimes. But right now, my tennis is really busy. Craig's really busy. But we're really glad that he's here with us. Got to tell you, we get lots of questions around here, lots of them. Last week, you know, lately, they've been losing cash with the Flash, Craig. Is that true? That's very true. Yeah, I've been going out on a limb a couple of times there. But they've been catching it all the way through. But, uh, like, for example, I honestly thought that Rafael Nadal would win Monte Carlo, and he didn't. And I didn't think that Lucas Rosal would win his first tournament, but he did. And congratulations to all those fellas. Homosexuality in tennis, Craig. Now, people have been writing to me. Jason Collins is a journeyman NBA player who all of a sudden decided, and he'll be out, I guess, in the May 6th edition of Sports Illustrated. He admits now that he is a homosexual athlete or homosexual man, whatever. And, of course, that spawns all kinds of questions from all different kinds of folks. What do you think about the issue of homosexuality in sport, especially in tennis? Is it? Let's, let's start with the men's side first. Do you think it's very prevalent over there on the men's side? Uh, well, you know, clearly it's not. I mean, the last few days have been kind of strange you wouldn't put the words witch hunt to it but it it almost seems in the last few days to me that uh, there's been a sort of call for anyone on the men's side who wants to declare themselves as homosexual to stand up um, announce themselves and 
come out to to the rest of the world. But uh, you know, clearly nobody either is in that situation or is willing to be seen as being in that situation. So it's uh, it's been a, a strange couple of days because it's almost been like they've been asking in the media for someone to reveal themselves, but, uh, you know, nobody has. Yeah, well, that organization, they, uh, they've been begging a lot of people to do that. You know, they need, they need what they need is famous athletes or as many athletes as they can. I don't know. You know what? I personally have never met a professional male tennis player or even heard of one who was gay. That doesn't mean there aren't any. I would think it's a societal thing, much like when we talked about the drug issue a while back. You know, I think, uh, and I'm talking about recreational drugs. Um, eh, probably, but here's the thing. If you're a tennis player, you're not going to want to do that. You know, if you're a male tennis player, especially a famous one, you're not going to do that. You're not going to come out of the closet. You're going to stay where you are. The other thing is, too, is there aren't too many secrets in the locker room. Now, one of the things that people probably confuse the locker room issue with is with this Jason Collins, there's a locker room culture in the NBA, but those are team locker rooms. They're all on the same team. In tennis, they're not. And any little tidbit of information that someone can pick up, well, they'll do that. And they'll use it to their advantage because in the end of the day, they're all combatants after one single prize. So if someone were gay, that would get out pretty quick, I'm sure. Now, that doesn't mean that they aren't, there aren't, and, but there is a code of omerta in that locker room, really. And one of the things is they usually keep it to themselves. They'll snitch, they'll, they'll gossip like crazy, but the outside world, they usually keep it inside, if that made sense. It certainly does from my perspective, and I think you raise a fantastic point there in that this is a solo game for individuals, and it brings, you know, this sort of scenario brings a lot of pressure, um, a lot of attention on one player, and, you know, a, a lot of these players, it, it would change the landscape of uh, the game if, if they did announce themselves to the media as being... Uh, openly homosexual, uh, they, they would get a lot more attention. They would put a lot more media pressure on them, and you know that's a really, really big uh, thing to carry in your career, especially uh, coming out as sort of the first person um, in the sport to openly admit to it. It'd be very difficult. Yeah, especially financially. I mean, it, you wouldn't probably see a top player do it because they would lose a lot of cash, I would think. You know, there's still a stigma attached to that. And a lot of sponsors, uh, they don't like to be openly associated with people who <laughs> are ostracized, and they shouldn't be, but it, it is what it is. You know, the other thing is, is uh, people talk about Tiger Woods and they say nobody knew what Tiger was doing. Well, here's the thing. Tiger Woods was flying his girlfriends in private jets, and he was whisking them up to penthouse suites. There's probably about six or seven tennis players on the tour on the men's side that could afford to do that. 
you know, they fly together, a lot of them. They go to the same tournaments week in and week out. They go to clubs together. They, if there were any hint of that sort of thing, and I'm talking on the top level, well, it would get out. Now, on, uh, in, and on the lower levels, in the satellites and in the challengers, they're even more close-knit because they really travel together, you know, and they, they're around each other. They know what's happening. I don't think that there would be one to come out. And if there is one or two or three or four or 10 or 20 or whatever, there's what, a thousand ranked players in the world. What is the at? What is it? 3% of all the population apparently is openly homosexual, they say. So that would be three. <laughs> yeah, I don't think there's that many. If there are, there are, you know, so what? Would, would male tennis players accept them? Absolutely, they would. What do they care? They're trying to beat them anyway. I mean, what's the difference? Tennis is not a team sport. They don't rely on the guy. They're trying to beat him. And in doubles, it's the same thing. If they don't like the guy, they just ditch him. You know, they ditch him for all kinds of reasons. They fight over girls all the time because there's not that many of them out there, especially at the lower levels. So, I mean, I don't think the guys would have too much of a problem with it. Would you? Or no, I think no, not at all. I mean, you know, each person to their own. Um, every person's an individual. They have their own preferences and what they want in life. Um, you know, it makes absolutely no difference to me what someone else wants, especially when it comes to a sport like tennis. I have absolutely no interest in what my opponent's preferences are in any aspect of life. We are. Uh, out there to hit the ball and I'm out there to show I can hit the ball better than my opponent and that's you know that's it yeah but you know what you might get a little smack talk though but then you get that anyway yeah, they might it, say some things you know especially the the South, or Latin American players and the Spanish players they're pretty macho guys <laughs> they, they kind of pride themselves on uh, their how do I put it their um, their pursuits if you will and if there were something like that happening out there, they would definitely uh, use that to their advantage mouth-wise anyway. But I don't think it would matter to them at the end of the day. They don't shower together. They shower in private stalls at the top level usually. So, I mean, it's not the same thing as a team sport really. So, uh, no, I don't think they would have a problem with it. I think the sponsors would. Would, would you think tournament directors would keep someone out? Uh, you know, I don't think so. Um, I, I don't think uh, at any level in, you know, 2013, there were too many people involved in the game that openly object or openly have an issue with it. Um, you know, the world was a pretty, a pretty accepting place now. Um, I, I think on some levels for, for someone to come out, yeah, you've made the great point, it'll be difficult with sponsors etc i mean a lot of players find it difficult as it is without having uh something like this attached to their profile but uh you know i, I really just don't see there being an issue with it on any level um it's it's not an issue and I, the, the way it's been handled this week I, I find a little bit bizarre to be honest I like what you say, witch hunt, and that's what it is. And I think that's what people wanted us to do, too, is to kind of try to out somebody. Well, here's, here, here's what you'll never hear from me. 
Even if I knew, I would never tell anyone. That's up to them. You know, that's something that's private, personal, and if they want to come out, they can't. Like I came out on my sports show the other day. You knew that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Regularly tuned to the sports show. So you heard uh, me. You heard me came. I came out on Thursday's show. I heard Thursday's show. Yes. Oh, you did. So you heard I came out. I told the world I like girls. <laughs> One in particular. Yeah. Did, did she, does she listen to the show? Nah. Well, sometimes I think lately it's lately, but uh, I'll tell you what. The last couple weeks, three weeks, she was uh, coming over like 2.30 in the morning to kind of keep me company for an hour or so before I had to do my show. So that's just the same thing, I guess. But nah, she knows I like girls, though, so it's okay. <laughs> she, she knows. We're not trying to make light of this, folks. And, and on the women's side, now I want to, I want to say something here. This is what, a point I made um, the other, actually, yes, on Thursday's show, Thursday's Phil Nason show, Martina Navratilova was a pioneer. This Jason Collins is just a is a journeyman no one ever heard of until yesterday, until last week, really. I, I'm I'm considered a fantasy basketball expert, and I have never spoken about him once in my life. I've never even given him any thought, nor have most of the people in basketball or who write about it, talk about it, or whatever. This is a little different issue. You want to talk about courage and someone who had courage to do it. Try being Martina Navratilova. She came out and told the world who she was when it wasn't, when it was really rough to be an admitted homosexual. And she did it and she lost millions of dollars, believe me. She, if she would have kept quiet, she would have had millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars in her bank account because everyone under the sun would have been coming to her to sponsor her and have her endorse things. That's how huge that lady was. And I, I admire that. I don't agree with that lifestyle at all. And, and I'm very honest about that. And But I, I respect her for what she did. I mean, damn. Can you imagine the way she was ostracized by the public? She even lost fans because of these things. People were calling her a man and all this nonsense. That's real courage, isn't it, Craig? It is. It's really, really difficult to imagine in this day and age uh, just exactly how the world was back then and how uh, difficult it was to be accepted, to be different in that way. And I think, you know, she really bucked the trend. She really came out. And a lot of people would say she did the right thing in giving up uh, all that money, sponsorship, recognition for what she believed in. And she became a sort of pioneer for her uh, cause. But, uh, you know, I, I'm sure she was advised by the people looking after her in terms of sponsorship, uh, agents, etc., not to do that. She, you know, it, it took a really strong mindset to go against that and to stand up and take a lot of the criticism that was sent her way. And man, did she get it too. And, and you know what? And she outlived them all. <laughs> That's the truth. You know, it's, it's pretty tough when people are calling you a queer while you're trying to play ball. You know, and you're playing against Chris Effort 
and you're playing against Steffi Graf and this and that, you know, she can still play tennis. She she had breast cancer, dude, and still won a challenger with uh, Yana Novotna, I believe. So, I mean, and she was almost 50 when she did that. She's a phenomenal human being, too. You know, like I said, we, we're not, we don't endorse her lifestyle here. I don't anyway. But that being said, I respect her for it. I have great respect for her. If she came on the show, I'd have a great time. I'm sure of it. And afterwards, we'd have to cyber high five on Skype. But seriously, now, as far as the women go, yeah, it's a little more prevalent. Um, they seem to um, be a little more open about who they are. Um, we're not going to name any names. They name themselves. but uh, And I think there are reasons for that, too. And I don't think it's because of the old butch nature of sport, either. I think it's just, well, to be honest, it's very tough for a young girl, a young lady to play professional tennis, especially if you come from a small country. I mean, these this is a man's world, especially like in Europe. And you get these coaches who, well, might not be so, well, professional in some respects. And you get tournament directors who, well, probably look for a little bonus to get somebody in a tournament or whatever. And it's a nasty business. And I think young ladies without a strong foundation at home often wind up abuse to the point where well they'd rather have a girl i guess what do you make of all that did i am i gone off the boil so to speak no i don't think so unfortunately and i I don't think you know tennis would be the only sport where that situation uh arises i think um you know this is probably something that you could take sport wide and look at a lot of sports uh, as having that sort of male dominance and uh, you know you have a young girl there looking to try and make a name for herself and uh, you know people trying to exploit that um, and I think a lot of these young ladies have got to be very careful um, especially you know some of them coming out of countries where there's a lot of pretty young girls looking to make a name for themselves and get on the scene in in a sport. They got to be really careful who they link up with in terms of agents, who they approach uh, to look after their career, get them into tournaments, and get them started on that path to to success. And uh, it, you know, things change. People, you know, a couple of bad experiences here and there that can uh, really influence someone on who they become down the line as a person. Yeah, you know, um, I've seen, excuse me, I've seen coaches who've actually slept in the same rooms as their, their junior tennis players, it's girls, guy coaches and girls. I, I could tell you a situation a few years back, uh, I was coaching a young lady and her parents asked me to, uh, travel with them and I said well it's going to get expensive because one I want a room on a separate floor from her and they went no well, you can stay in the same room I said what do you want me to do shag your daughter because that's what's going to happen because one thing leads to another you know it, it, it's human nature really and it's not good you, know, you have to protect yourself you can't put yourself in these bad situations 
And, and a lot of times what happens, and, and I don't believe that the general coaching population are predators at all, but these things happen. And, you know, you've got these guys who are a lot older, and they're on the road too, really. They're with this girl the whole time. This is how it happens. I'll tell you how it happens. It's never happened for me, thank God, but it can't happen. This is how it happens. And I know guys have told me this. You know, they go to these tournaments and they're with these girls so much that they really grow to care about them. And what happens is they're traveling, they're on their own. And, you know, you put your arm around the girl because, well, she lost and you feel bad too. You know, because like I said, you grow to care about your students. It's natural to care about your students. And then, you know, one thing leads to another and, well, you wind up in a bit of trouble. And it's not cool. And what usually what winds up happening is these guys are also married. And, well, they have to make a choice. And they're not going to choose a 16-year-old girl over their wife, probably. So the girl ends up getting hurt. And when you get that a couple of times, I think you get in trouble. But that's how it happens. I don't think there are too many guys out there who are actual predators. I know a couple, and, well, we've exposed them. Maybe not on this show, but I've done that. Anyhow, um... But, yeah, there are ladies out there. And, yeah, I remember Alexander Stevenson's mother made some statements a while ago. Alexander Stevenson is uh, Julius Irving's daughter. And she had made a splash at Wimbledon. And after that, didn't do a whole lot. But the mother said, I'm going to be around because I don't want my daughter being preyed upon by the older lesbian females. Ah, uh, I do you? I've never honestly been in a ladies' locker room, so I don't know. But uh, what do you think that happens? Do you think it's that 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 probably occurs? I don't want to be naive here, but I don't want to point fingers wrongly either. But do you think that that occurs as well? I don't know. You've got to include for every possibility, I suppose. You know, you've got a, a fairly wide age range of girls on the tour, um, young girls coming in 17, 18 years old, going all the way up to, you know, some of those doubles players are reaching, you know, early 40s, etc. Um, what people think uh, happens and what does happen are potentially two completely different things. As you pointed out, neither of us have been in the uh, female locker room on the tour. We don't know. What the situation is, but uh, you know, there's, there's a possibility that that happens. But you know, I, I think there's so many girls on the tour that, um, and so many girls from different locations. That any young girl coming on the tour that's looking for a, a role model or a, a friend, you know, there's plenty of people they could find to to look up to, to help them out, to assist them. Um, I, I don't think any of these girls are in a position where they're going to get preyed upon by uh, one girl or groups of girls in particular, I, th I think they'll have plenty of people they can go to and, uh, you know, I think they could feel safe on the tour. So I, I think the viewpoint of the mother there is, it's a little bit naive, I think. Yeah, I think so too, but uh, she's not the sharpest <laughs> knife in a drawer probably either. Yeah, there are, pro you know what, it is out there just like it is in your neighborhood. And you know something? It really doesn't matter at the end of the day. They are who they are, and that's the way it is. You know, they've chosen to do what they do, 
and that's fair enough. And, and while we, uh, here at least, you know, we don't subscribe to that lifestyle, certainly not going to condemn them for it. It's not my role in life. And I think that the better focus should be just on these ladies and what they have accomplished because they've accomplished a hell of a lot. It's very difficult to reach the level where you fans out there get to see them play on TV. So I think a little tolerance is in order. Concentrate on their tennis and, you know, leave their personal lives alone. Don't try to guess on who's who's doing what to who because that'll only ruin your love for the sport if you have any. Anyway, but Martina Navratilova is the real courageous one, my friends. She's the pioneer, and I wish her all the best. I, I wish she could. St- I wish she was to come back out on the tour and make things exciting again. But uh, anyway, Whew. okay, <laughs> dodge that one. I think. I think so. Anyway, Craig. Now you are a professional photographer. You have media credentials. What's it like for you to be a photographer at a pro tennis tournament? Give us, give a, kind of describe it for someone who may want to entertain that idea in their lives as an occupation, if you would. Sure. Um, I think it's a lot different to what people expect. And certainly the first time that I went out, it was a lot different to what I expected. Um, anyone who's into photography will know that it's, a lot more to the discipline than simply just clicking the button on your camera and taking the picture. There's a whole sort of editing side of the work you got to do as well before you get that picture looking fantastic uh, and ready to to actually do anything with. So you know, you you touched on it in your opening there about uh, being accredited uh, to. The, the first thing you need before you actually um, get to the event is the accreditation for the individual event itself. So in terms of media credentials, that's you know getting that pass that allows you to get down the front on the court uh, into that position where you can take the best possible pictures of the event. So you know that that comes from uh, usually through your agency. You, in, in my case, being a uh, freelance, I work with an agency freelance and they uh, sort out the accreditation so that when I arrive at the event, I have my uh, pass ready to pick up and th- that I, I get that at the gate and that gets me straight into the courts as soon as I get there. But uh, I think the first thing people really should know is that um, when you get there, you ain't getting held by the hand like you are in any other job in life. Uh, you're just expected to know straight away which door gets you into the front of each court, which door gets you up top of each court, etc. You've you got to figure a lot of things out for yourself. Um, people should really know that it's it's not uh, an easy life. It's not something um, where you, you take a few snaps and uh, that's you for the day. You know, the typical day for me, I would be turning up at the courts, um, 10 o'clock at the the venue itself. I'd head to the media center. I'd drop my stuff off. Uh, I set up my laptop at my desk in the media room beside the rest of the photographers and journalists. Um, I'd get out there as soon as possible with my cameras. 
try and get a few snaps of the warm-up before the players come out, usually about 11 o'clock uh, for the European tournaments when the first matches start. Um, the, the trick is that uh, a freelancer like myself doesn't have the benefits that a big agency photographer like the guys that work with the Associated Press or Getty Images have. Those guys have the ability to take pictures all day, but they don't have to edit their pictures. They have guys sitting in the press room edit, editing the photos for them all day. So from my perspective, I've got to go out, I've got to take the pictures, I then got to run back to the press room, I've got to download the pictures from the memory card and the camera on my laptop, then I've got to edit them, then I've got to email them out to my agency who can get them out uh, onto the internet and available for prospective buyers such as newspapers, magazines, websites, etc. To, to see these pictures. So you, you can understand that the, the process is, you know, I'm, I'm at a match. Let's say I'm watching Rafael Nadal and he's just won. Um, i, I got to get some pictures from that out within like 30 minutes, an hour of that match finishing because these websites, as you well know, they're writing the match reports. These are up really quick after the, the match is finished and they need the pictures as soon as possible. So... You know, I, I, I've got to rush around and uh, get from the court to the media center. I've got to do my bit in the media center and get back out from the media center onto the courts again uh, to continue taking pictures. So if you can imagine, you know, working from 10 in the morning until 10 o'clock in the evening some days, just back and forth between the media center and the, the courts in play, it's a long day and there's a lot of running around. It's, you know regular not to have lunch or dinner or whatnot and just pick up something during a quiet five ten minutes to eat it's non-stop work and it's uh you know it's not easy no i don't think it would be now you talk about being credentialed and that's you know i know for me i have um, media credentials from the nba and from major league baseball um, and i know what i had to do to get them what is someone need to do to get a press credential or a media credential in order to snap pictures at a tennis tournament because there's a difference right between the guy who brings the camera and who might get their picture published on a website and an actual affiliated or accredited media where you sit in photographer's row how does that work yeah it's uh it's it's a kind of bizarre scenario because the break-in is really difficult you have this sort of chicken and egg scenario where that to get to accreditation you've got to show pictures that you've been accredited before or you've been able to sell pictures before but to kind of get that kind of quality of picture to sell you actually have to have the accreditation so you know it, it, it's not easy to, to make that breakthrough you've got to have something to show an independent agency who can apply on your behalf for that accreditation to, to, to get you that media pass, that gets you that uh, uh, the photographer's armband at the event, the uh, media credential card that allows you to sit in the front row. So my advice to anyone out there would be take great pictures, take great pictures at university sports, college level sports. You you know, kids sports, if you if you could take the same caliber of picture at that event and show that you've got the ability to regularly produce high quality images at a college event or whatever, 
and you submit that to an agency, anyone who's worth their salt in the industry can see that quality shining through. They'll take a chance on you and they'll send you to one of these big events, get you that accreditation that gets you the uh, best seat in the house effectively to allow you to take pictures. Yeah, that's a good answer. You know what? Also, there's a lot of photographers out there and there's only so many pictures that actually get picked up, right? Yeah, exactly. So, like, what are the now? At for example, at a Grand Slam, now I know that you haven't. You've done at Wimbledon, right, or no? I've not done Wimbledon. I have done Roland Garros. How? How? Okay. Okay. I wasn't sure. I knew that you did one. At least I didn't want to credit you with the wrong one. But uh, how many photographers would you say? are at a match on center court because obviously center court you're going to see a star and star appeal how many photographers are vying for that what four or five shots that wind up wherever they wind up oh man you know almost everyone who's on site pretty much gets a picture or two from the big matches it's uh you know at any one time on court, you could be sitting in that booth uh, down in the front row and there will maybe be, you know, depending on who it is it's on, you, there could be 10 to 60 people on those benches at any one time. And that's just the benches because you have positions below the court, behind the, behind the, the sort of court, you have positions up top, you have people sort of mid-level taking shots as well. Uh, if it's someone like Maria Sharapova, who is insanely popular, you'll struggle to get a place on those benches. Um, everyone from all over the world, whether it be American media, British media, Japanese media, you name it, um, these people are crowding onto the benches. You've got to squeeze up shoulder to shoulder with everyone just to get a picture. So the competition with these big-name players who get their pictures in the paper guaranteed is absolutely intense. It's, it's very, very difficult, you know, when it's a 1 in 60 or a 1 in 100 chance of getting that picture sold. You know, it, it, it's very, very difficult. Yeah, I, I know that it is. It, it is. It's really tough. It's like hitting a lottery, someone told me once, basically, because you have so many people snapping. But uh, now you described there's different places and different areas where photographers are allowed it's what they call it photographers row right i think it's what it's called and anyhow um is there a pecking order how does that work Who, how do you get the best seat in the house is it first come first serve is it a war is it a lottery how does it work <laughs> it's generally we uh we have different names for the different areas as uh the photography pit is what you usually call the area at the back of the court as well. But what you tend to find, it is, it is first come, first serve. However, they tend to have a sort of fair play rule, if you will, between photographers that if it's someone super popular, like, say, Rafael Nadal at Roland Garros, and he's in a, a big match, they'll, they'll sort of say, you know, if you're down for the first set in the on the benches, and there's not enough room, then, you know, please free up the benches for the second set and take up another shooting position somewhere else for the second set and then another one for the third set, which gives all the photographers an opportunity to get that, uh, that, that different angles, different shots from the different angles and, uh, 
it, it kind of allows a little bit of fairness so that one person's not uh, in the prime position all the time. Okay, that makes sense. Now, how do I want to phrase this? I'm having a good time interviewing you, dude. You know, I do this for a living, you know, but uh, this is a lot more fun because I actually know the answers this time, most of them anyway, because we talk a lot, or we did until I got too busy. <laughs> but anyway, um, when you're at the, for example, you're at a tennis tournament, how many pictures do you snap at a given Grand Slam? And how many do you sell? Because this is, I think, what people need to understand is that you bust your ass to get that one shot, right? How many, How does that work? How, what's the differential? We're not going to ask you how much you get, obviously, because that's none of one's business. I'll ask you that privately, though. <laughs> <laughs> Holy kidding, man. Yeah, I think, you know, I take upwards of 2,000 pictures per day. Um, so... And, and I'm not one of the people who's snap happy. There are, there are guys out there who are snapping a lot more shots than I am. Um, but, you know, I, I've got usually about six, um, eight gigabyte um, memory cards in my pocket. I, I try not to fill all of them because that means you've been away from the, the media center for a long time. But, you know, I, I could fill easily 2,000 shots per day. And of those 2,000 shots per day, you know, you're lucky if you sell, you know, 10 shots per day. You know, you gotta you gotta consider that you're aiming at world newspapers, different countries, um, media sites, and magazines. But uh, you gotta look around and consider that these places like Getty Images have got contracts with various newspapers, so that kind of slims a few, that slims your sort of target audience for your pictures. Um, so you've got to like attack the the newspapers and websites that don't have like media deals with with one of these big companies. So uh, there's still plenty of them, admittedly, but um, it's it's a narrow field you're selling to, and there's a lot of competition. So it's pretty tough. Now you said something about gigabytes. Now I want to ask this question: How is it different for you now? What how with the digital age? Uh, how has photography changed? It almost as if, you know, you say you can snap 2,000 pictures. You know, I see tourists. I do this too, Craig. I have a digital camera, and I just snap, 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 snap. I used to do photography a little bit. I had my own darkroom when I was a kid. But uh, how has it changed? What? How has the game changed? Has it improved the game? Has it made it more competitive? How does it work now as opposed to how it did when you had to actually develop the pictures yourself? And string them together, and roll them on the spindle, and hit them through the juice. How does that work now? What's how much better is it now, or is it different now, or is it worse? Uh, it's better. It's definitely better. I mean, you've got these cameras that are capable of so many things that they've almost leveled the playing field to the point that, with the right equipment, which you know, it's ex it's expensive equipment. The cameras and the lenses are very expensive, but you know. With the right equipment, almost anyone can get a good picture now. It, the, there's less um, anticipation involved. There's less knowledge in being able to set up that shot. and There's less luck involved, I guess, as well. Um, now you can switch the camera settings to change the how quickly the, the camera um, shutter closes, etc., without any fear of wasting... Um, money because every time with a film camera and you'll know this yourself having used one every time you click that shutter 
in the back of your mind, you've spent money. Whereas with these digital cameras, you just fire nonstop. You take shots, you can experiment. It's all free. Um, as soon as you hit the shutter, if you don't like it, you know, hit delete, leave it on the memory card, whatever. Um, continue taking pictures, try something different. Um, this digital age just allows people to be a lot more creative, try a lot of different things, and uh, you know, you, you get a lot better results, I guess, and a lot more frequent results. Yeah, it makes sense, man. I know we kind of carried the ball a little further than we were going to. I appreciate you doing that because you know what? You never know. Maybe some young kid is going to want to pick it up and go for it as a career. Anyway, what we have to do is take a break. And when we return, we will be talking about our favorite topic, <laughs> doping in tennis. You're listening to This Week in Tennis on Max Sports Channels and our brand new affiliate, Independent Radio Los Angeles. For you, the listeners of This Week in Tennis, Audible.com is offering you a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. I'd personally like to recommend Tim Galloway's book, The Inner Game of Tennis. And you can get this book or any other of over 100,000 titles all for free simply by trying audible.com to download your free audiobook today please go to audibletrial.com slash flash tennis again that's audibletrial.com slash flash tennis and get your free audiobook today ladies and gentlemen tonight we come together cool and i think it's cool somebody's gonna be having fun tonight <laughs> all i want to do is go have a good time Bill Nason. Some of the things that these people say. Jimmy Z. That is such twisted logic. Alex Jones. You heard it here first, now it's mainstream news. Weeknights, starting at 10 Eastern. Okay, well, let's go party, baby. Yeah, tomorrow can wait till tomorrow. Ah, it's a lot of fun. I said tomorrow can wait till tomorrow. It's all about tonight. And we'll have fun, I promise. Yeah. Weeknights on the Talk Superstation. Been dreaming of that Greek vacation? Well, if you have, then you might want to check out the folks at the Oridi Grand Hotel, located in beautiful Corfu, Greece. Come experience world-class cuisine, as well as the hospitality that Greece is legendary for at the Oridi Grand Hotel. You can find them at aridihotel.com or email them at reservations at aridihotel.com Stitcher Smart Radio is an award-winning free mobile application that lets you listen to your favorite shows and discover the best of news, entertainment and sports on demand. Now you don't even need a Wi-Fi or a cell connection to listen to shows like the Phil Nation Show. Never miss another show. It's real simple. Just go to Stitcher.com and download the free app today. And never miss another Phil Nason show. Looking for the latest information on your favorite sports team? Why not check out 15-year-old founder Trevor Urenz, ProSportsExtra.com. Updated daily by a staff of over 30 writers, ProSportsExtra.com is the place to be you can check them out and i insist that you do 
at prosportsextra.com. Hi, this is Phil Nasons from The Phil Nason Show and This Week in Tennis. When I'm looking for sports information, my first stop, as well as yours should be, sports-kings.com. Great information, scores, highlights, and exceptional commentary. You can find it all there at sports-kings.com. Looking for the latest information on your favorite sports team? Why not check out 15-year-old founder Trevor Urenz, ProSportsExtra.com. Updated daily by a staff of over 30 writers, ProSportsExtra.com is the place to be. You can check them out, and I insist that you do, at ProSportsExtra.com. He's my- 
Welcome back to this week in tennis. That was Rainbow. Since you've been gone. It's May the 4th. It's 2013. My name is Phil Nasons, and I want to thank you all for taking the time to listen to This Week in Tennis at 4 p.m. Eastern daily on Max Sports Channels and on Independent Radio LA. We're happy to be there with you. I don't know what time you folks in LA are listening to this show because we don't have a set time yet. They're doing a demographic study, but we're really happy that... Uh, the station picked us up so we can be a part of your tennis lives and tennis experience, and you can make us a little happier too. Anyway, our favorite topic is doping, tennis doping. Well, it really isn't. I find it like, well, usually when anyone brings this up to me, I usually have vomit in my mouth because I get tired of talking about this. But I know uh, my little favorite blogger in Toronto, Canada, can't resist listening anytime I bring up the PEDS scandal. There's a doctor in Spain, his last name is Fuentes. He has been suspended by the Spanish government for four years for practicing in a way that they consider harmful to the general public. Craig Doyle's here with me once again. He's from CraigDoylePhotography.com. Craig, let's unpack this. What the heck is going on in Spain and how how is this why does this matter to tennis people? Uh, I think it matters to tennis people because this guy is known to have worked with um individuals in this sport um in some capacity during his career. It's undefined as to what he has worked with these individuals on. Um, it's just known that he has been associated with one of the big tennis academies in Spain. And it's not just tennis he's related to. I mean, he, his name came up in relation to cycling, which, um, you know, I, you don't need me to tell you how big the doping in cycling thing has been the last couple of years. Um, a lot of what's come out in that now is threatening to spill over into soccer, tennis, boxing, uh, running, you know, sports that involve a, a cardiovascular element where perhaps um, these performance-enhancing drugs can influence the outcome of matches um, reaching all the way up to the, the top level of these sports. Um, and, and we are talking about a doctor who could perhaps have aided top stars in these sports, well-known household names to have more success than perhaps they would have uh, without his involvement. Yeah, I caught that too, but they didn't name any names, did they? <laughs> yeah, most, most certainly not. That's not helpful because it allows our little friend in Toronto to speculate and talk shit, and I can't stand that. You know what? Uh, people ask me all the time, how is it that these young people wind up going to these kind of doctors? Well, it's real easy. You know, most people listening to this show, and I'm not being derogatory or mean, I'm being honest, don't travel very extensively. Honestly, they just don't. And if they do, they didn't do it when they were teenagers. Now, when you go on holiday or whatever, there's a good chance you won't get hurt. Nothing happens to you, whatever. When you're a young person traveling the circuit, 
the junior circuit, senior circuit, or whatever, you're going to wind up with some bumps and bruises, some aches and pains, and pulled muscles, whatever. And you have to keep it moving because you can't stop, you see. That's the the horrible part of the ranking system in tennis is it doesn't reward you if you get hurt. You have to go out there and play. Sponsors expect you to go out there and play. And what happens is these young people, and a lot of times they're in countries where maybe people don't understand them very well or they don't understand the, the other folks very well. English is the international language at a tennis tournament, but maybe outside of that tournament, not the case. So what happens is let's say Johnny, tennis player, feels a tweak in his hamstring at a junior tournament, and he is traveling by himself. There's not a doctor on site, not that I've ever seen in an ITF tournament, a junior one anyway. Maybe the big ones they do. Obviously, they do with the Grand Slams. There aren't trainers there. So what happens is the kid goes and goes, man, I, I, I tweaked something here, dude. How, oh, I got to get something. I got to go to the pharmacy. Well, maybe the tournament director knows a doctor, a doctor like Fuentes. And the kid goes to Dr. Fuentes, and he doesn't have a clue who Dr. Fuentes is. All he knows is he's got a problem, and he's got to get it fixed. Dr. Fuentes is a nice man. He seems successful. More importantly, he's good at what he does, and he speaks the language, and they understand each other. He's a nice guy. I don't think Dr. Fuentes is a bad human being. But here's the thing. He's nice to the kid. He gives him some tablets, and the kid doesn't give a rat's ass. He just got to go. He got to keep it moving. He's got to go and play ball the next day. And he takes them, and he feels better. And it might be perfectly innocent, and there might not be anything involved in it. Illegal. So now this kid remembers his doctor, you see. And as this kid gets older, he gets other issues, and he's always traveling. And these doctors have this ability to travel to meet you. If you knew anything about or know anything out there about the Lance Armstrong case, you'll know that these doctors were traveling to meet Lance Armstrong where he was. Lance was rarely going to them. They were coming to him, meeting out in the roadway somewhere, wherever. And these doctors, you know, you, you keep their card and you go, wow, I remember when this dude, man, he gave me something. He's a good doctor. He's a nice guy. And the next time, let's first say, for example, you're in Portugal and something happens, bingo, you go to him. Or you're away from things. You've got this card. Now it's easy to text people. You text them, hey, what can I do? And the doctor comes and maybe now he's saying, you know, I can help you do something even better. And you've trusted him because, quite frankly, he made you feel better. And that's how it starts. And that's how they get their hooks into you. Now, I don't consider Dr. Fuentes a sinister man. I think he's just a guy who came up with some great ideas about how to dope athletes. And he got away with it for a long time. It's illegal what he did. But, you know, doctors are human beings, too. And I don't want to fault the guy for that. But that's how it starts, Craig, I think. And, you know, unfortunately, this report... And this suspension, there have been some tennis players. Well, people are speculating again, aren't they? Yeah, of course they're speculating. I mean, at this stage, you, you have absolutely no names. Um, just the names of people who have been linked to this doctor at some time in the past. And unfortunately for those players, it uh, casts a bit of a cloud over their achievements because, um, you know, this link to this doctor at this stage in time has a lot of people giving those sort of suspecting glances in their direction so it, it, it puts a little bit more pressure on them 
but I, I think the the big issue and uh, one top top player in particular commented on it in the last few days is that the uh, blood bags involved in this um, scandal in that that were found in this doctor's office that uh, the anti-doping agency really wanted to check to see who was involved. These blood bags are not going to be made available. The uh, Spanish authorities want these bags destroyed before they get into the hands of the anti-doping agencies. And, you know, that just casts a lot more suspicion um, on what is actually going on here and, you know, what's not going on here. Um, I, I think people, and this includes uh, players on the tour now, they, they want to know what's going on, um, who's involved, who's not involved, and they just want to, you know, clear things up and move on. Well, the obvious names come up, that's for sure. You know, Fuentes is a big-time doctor, and it's not just Spanish players, too, apparently. It's some girls from other countries. Look, man, we don't know who these people are. And, and you know what? If the Spanish government must know whose blood bags belong to who. And, of course, they want to see it go away. You know, they don't want to see their uh, top athletes tainted in any way, would you? I mean, let's be honest. I wouldn't want that. I would probably want to destroy the evidence, too. But even then, what's the difference? I mean, what's the difference? Let's say, let's, let's just say, this is a hypothetical. Let's say, for example, Juan Carlos Ferrero, Ferrera is, uh, or Ferrero is involved in this mess. Or a Carlos Moya. They're retired now. What are you going to do to them? Take away their majors? You have to prove that they were using these this substances, allegedly, while they were winning that tournament, wouldn't you? Yeah, exactly. And it, it brings, I think this comes a lot back to this um, huge Lance Armstrong debate in that, you know, this guy himself had retired as well. He'd won however many Tour de France's and other cycling events. And to, to come back and retrospectively erase their achievements, erase the record of their victories. I mean, what's the point? You know, these guys have had their moment in the sun. They've stood on the podium. They've... Uh, had that moment um, of achievement and you know you can't take that away retrospectively you can't take away the moment that guy was standing there accepting the title uh, you can't give it to someone else because they can't have that moment and uh, you know all you can really do is, is go at it from a financial standpoint and even then it, it you know you just open up more and more legal issues and you end up with bigger and bigger messes. So effectively, you've you got to ask yourself, is there any point in digging into the past? Sure, try and clean up the future, make everything um, as level a playing field going forward as possible, but there's really no benefit to going back and uh, digging up history. No, you know what? There sure isn't. And uh, you know the thing is, too, is with the Lance Armstrong thing, and I, I did some work on that, uh, recognized work, in fact, is that his teammates ratted him out. They were eyewitnesses to this. I mean, that's why they nailed him, because they never caught him dirty. They nailed him because of eyewitness accounts. And like I've said a hundred times here, and I had an expert agree with me on this, Richard Eggs, is that you're not going to get a top tennis player and catch him 
with your eyeballs if you're for another competitor. They're not going to do it in front of their other competitors. Whereas in the Lance Armstrong thing, these guys were all on the same team and they were all doing it in the same RV and they all knew what was going on. Now, geez. I, now, here's the thing. Now they're allowing these biological passports to be taken and people saying, well, the players really want it. What are they going to say? No, they don't want it. But I'm going to go back to my original position and I'm going to say this. Catch them. Stop speculating and actually catch them. You're never going to catch them with a drug test because they're smarter. The drugs always outrun the test. You have to know what you're testing for. Never going to catch the top player. Never. Not the way Lance Armstrong got caught. It'll never happen. So stop speculating out there about who's doing what to who and who's putting what in their bodies. Only a dumbass would get caught now, Craig. Only somebody completely stupid would get caught. You know, do I want to see a clean sport? Well, I don't know. Do I? Do you, Craig? Do you want to see a clean sport? Because I think that's what I'm seeing is a clean sport. Because I don't have any evidence to prove otherwise. Do you? I certainly don't have any other evidence, Phil. You know, there's nothing out there to say that anyone's cheating. There's, there's no evidence until it's been presented, to, until someone gets hard proof, real facts, then everything's specul- speculation. And I'm sure that a certain blogger somewhere will be typing away as soon as he listens to this, saying how naive the pair of us are. But, you know, he's no proof, we've no proof, nobody's got any proof until some anti-doping agency comes forward and shows us the proof. Um, We're not in a position to judge anyone based on any speculation. Absolutely, and I don't like to do that anyway. It's not nice. We like to speculate on who's going to win and lose matches, but that's a different issue. We're not destroying anyone's career or potentially destroying anyone's opportunity to make money because some little moron who is obsessed and needs to take Prozac or something. And of course, I can't slander you, Mr. Prozac boy, because you're anonymous. Who are you? (laughs) You don't exist. But I know who you are, and you know I do. Cool it with the insinuations out there. Leave these young people alone. Unless you can prove it, keep your mouth shut and keep it moving. It's not nice. It's not fair to these young people who have busted their asses for some little wet-behind-the-ears punk who could never do anything other than type with his little bag over his head and his mama bringing him soup. Leave it alone. Leave them alone. Let the controlling bodies do the work. Let people like the Johan Creeks and the Ray Browns and the uh, Wayne Bryans and even the Phil Nasons and the thousands of other quality teaching pros out there educate their students that taking performance-enhancing drugs is the wrong way. You're trying to tackle something out there, some of you, from the top down, and it ain't going to work. you got to finish. If you think there's a drug problem out there, you got to take care of it from the ground up. Otherwise, you'll always have problems. Craig, I'm sorry I got a little wound up there at the end. But you know how I feel about these young people out there. You know, I coach some of them. I love them all. Even when I crack on them, I love them all because that's part of the entertainment of the show. But still and all, 
don't make insinuations about the people in my sports, you know, especially from people who aren't in the sport. You know what I mean, Craig? Yeah, I know exactly what you mean, but, you know, this is the most controversial tennis show of its kind. And, uh, you know, we're here to get passionate. We're here to share opinions, not opinions that everyone's going to agree with. We're tackling the real issues. And I think everyone appreciates the passion you just displayed in that uh, last little segment. Well, I appreciate that. And I appreciate you staying up as late as you have to do this show with me. And I've got to wrap this up because now I have to do my baseball show for Friday. Craig, thank you so much for being here today, man. I appreciate it so much. We'll try to get you back again next week. Excellent. I appreciate the opportunity to join you again for this show. Thank you very much. You can find Craig Doyle at CraigDoylePhotography.com. And that's going to wrap it up for this week's edition of This Week in Tennis. Again, we want to thank Craig Doyle for being the trooper that he is, staying up till 1.45 in the morning in order to help me bring this show to you. Thank you so much for subscribing on iTunes. Thank you so much for coming to the various sites and listening on the various networks that affiliate with This Week in Tennis. If you'd like to bring This Week in Tennis to your radio station or even your website, just come over to philnasons.com and leave me a message. You can leave me a free voicemail or you can hit me up in the contact box. It's all free. Your comments, concerns, or whatever will, be, will remain confidential, as will your identity. Until next week, you all be good out there. And most importantly, enjoy the tennis. <laughs>